When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, are you ready for some money rehab? Wall Street has been completely upended by an unlikely player, GameStop. And should I have a 401k? You don't do it? No, I know. Girl! You think the whole world revolves around you and your money? Well, it doesn't. Charge for wasting our time. I will take a check. You recognize her from anchoring on CNN, CNBC, and Bloomberg. The only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. The cold lapin. I know you're going to love this episode because today we are going to be talking about cupcakes. And who does not love cupcakes? My guest today is Candace Nelson, co-founder of Sprinkles, the world's first cupcake bakery, and Pizana, a chain of neo-Neapolitan pizzerias that is delicioso. Today, we talk about how founders can carve space for their companies in the food industry and what lessons from Candace's Cupcake MBA we can apply to any business. Well, Candace, I'm so excited to say welcome to Money Rehab. I am delighted to say thank you for having me on Money Rehab. (laughs) You have an awesome new book coming out in November. It's called Sweet Success, a simple recipe to turn your passion into profit. And I'd love to talk about some of the lessons that you discuss in the book. First, you talk about landing your perfect idea and testing it for traction. This is so, so important, and I am so glad we're starting here. In your various ventures, what have you done for product testing. Oh, product testing. Well, you have to start by being your own best product uh, taste tester. Um, And I have done a great job of that. Had to join a gym in the early days of Sprinkles for the first time ever because I was doing a little bit too much recipe development. I think in terms of landing an idea, you know, it sounds so intimidating to come up with that big idea, right? That you're going to go all in on and and start that company of your dreams, but you don't have to reinvent the wheel with your idea. You don't have to be a category creator. I mean, obviously you're going to get a lot of um, benefit from being a category creator. If you think of, you know, companies like Spanx or Airbnb, um, obviously they have had some great returns on that. But Sprinkles was just an update or a reinvention on something that everybody in the country already loved, which was a cupcake. And we just repackaged it in a way that um, allowed consumers to see it through new eyes. So, you know, I think when landing an idea, it's probably easiest when you come from a place of industry expertise, because you can really see what's missing in the market. Um, but it can also just as easily come from a frustration. You know, um, so many great companies have come from, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs or people just bumping their heads up against a wall and being like, I wish there was X, Y, or Z, and then getting up off the couch and making it happen. So as you know, optimistic as I like to think entrepreneurs are, and I think in general, we're an optimistic bunch because we're sort of dreaming the impossible into reality. I think that there's a lot of benefit 
from leaning into your frustrations. Absolutely. So there's kind of a bucket of a zhuzh, uh, which is one of my new favorite words, or mm. refresh of different products or categories, and then a total disruption. And it's totally cool to be in one or the other, even if it's like really leaning into the zhuzh, which you did, not your mama's cupcakes, not your mama's pizza. Uh, in your book, you also talk about positioning your company within the market to break through all of the noise and all of the competition out there. I think that's especially relevant to folks who are interested in particularly competitive spaces and industries. Uh, we actually just did an interview with the woman who's behind Girl With No Job, who is starting a sparkling beverage brand, which is a super, super crowded space. So what can brands do to break through the noise or if they're intimidated by the competition that's out there, what would you suggest to them? It is a competitive market out there. And I think that's why it's so important to be a student of the competition, know exactly who you're going up against and how you are going to in turn differentiate yourself. Are you competing on price? Not something I typically recommend in this Amazon uh, world of ours, but how are you coming at this space um, through a different lens, from a different angle? How are you going to make people, you know, sit up and pay attention? And it sounds like, you know, it doesn't sound like the most groundbreaking advice to know, you know, the the players in your market space. But I'm always amazed when I see pitch decks now from, you know, the perspective of being an angel investor in early stage companies, you know, they're competition slides are not always very um, complete. Yeah. yeah, they're not so good. Like they're, they're kind of missing a few uh, competitors on the slide. And it's not usually even an oversight. It's just that, you know, these founders are are not exactly aware about all the other companies in their industry. And I think that just puts you at such a disadvantage. I mean, I made myself like I gave myself a stomach ache going around and and tasting all the competition. Um, but it's it's absolutely uh, critical to to being able to rise above the noise and and have a specific point of view and make people start talking about you. Yeah, I, I love an MBA in the school of cupcakes. I also want to talk about marketing. Of course, you are so great at it. In your book, you give readers tips for harnessing the power of organic marketing. Can you first define organic marketing for us? Absolutely. Organic marketing is marketing that you are not paying for. People are just talking about you out there in the wilderness. And it's because they love you. It's that organic word of mouth. And it is the holy grail of marketing. People spend, as you know, companies spend millions of dollars on marketing. Um, but when you can get people talking about your product without having to spend too much money, and then that's, you know, developing a, a sort of a virality to it, that is what you want. And, and that is a lot of times when you know you've found that product market fit, if you're kind of just starting a company and start building a new product. I actually found out about Sprinkles from uh, some of my big vegan friends who were telling me about the vegan cupcake. And so I I didn't know anything about Sprinkles, but then I knew I had to get the vegan cupcake from being vegan for so long and struggling to find edible, delicious cupcakes. So I was actually a uh, part of maybe intentional or unintentional organic marketing strategy with Sprinkles. Were you hoping that that something like that would happen to to make sprinkles what it ultimately became. Uh, well, absolutely. Thank you for helping be one of our brand ambassadors out there, Nicole. And oh, well, thank you for feeding me so well. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things, obviously, that makes it easy to find that sort of organic marketing and that word of mouth is obviously 
a great product. I mean, if you bite into an amazing vegan cupcake and you haven't had one that tasted quite so good before, or the same goes for pizza, you're going to talk about it. So start with a really great product, obviously, or not obviously, because you know some people just rely on the marketing part. But I think then there's also when people really love a product, they crave a deeper connection to the brand than just the product itself. Yeah, I definitely uh, love this lesson of you can't market your way out of a bad product. At mm. the end of the day, you know, when people say, "Well, how do you get on all these shows?" or "How do you, you know, get billboards or whatever else?" You, you can have all of that, and that's great. But it's an and, not an or, to having a core good product. Because when all of that dies down, you really do rely on food of mouth. Food of mouth. <laughs> You're making me hungry. I like that Word term of mouth. <laughs> no, it's true. And, you know, as much sort of buzz as Sprinkles had initially, which was, again, completely organic. And, again, I think also fueled by the scarcity, right? So when we opened our doors, I had baked through the night. I had sort of painstakingly, you know, um, filled the display case with all these different cupcakes. They were beautiful. They were perfect. And they were just enough or so I thought to get us through the day. And it was like, uh, it was just cupcake mania from the moment we opened our doors. And by like noon, our, our display was bare. So our line turned into an angry mob. Um, but I think part of that, you know, scarcity was also got people talking, right? It's like, wait, you went to a cupcake place and they actually didn't have cupcakes for you and they're charging $3? Like, what is this place? Whether or not you wanted a cupcake or not, like the story was too sort of intriguing not to take notice. Um, So yeah, so we had this initial buzz and so those were all of our tastemakers, right? And the tastemakers you need because everybody listens to the tastemakers. They're telling everybody what's cool and what's hot. But ultimately you need also your mass audience because those tastemakers are going to be onto their next hot thing. And, and so we knew, you know, we had this great flock of, you know, fabulous, like the who's who around town filling our store. But we also knew that if we weren't delivering on a great product and a great experience, it wouldn't matter because they would ultimately leave us and then there wouldn't be anybody left behind. But they brought their friends with us and their friends stayed. That's so interesting because I guess like the diehards and especially in the food industry, the foodies probably are gung ho about it and then they move on with that move on probably, you know, during a time when a lot of cupcake brands were out and trying to do their thing. Uh, they went by the wayside, but sprinkles continued. So how do you think sprinkles was able to make it over that you know, finicky sort of foodie um fickleness i i love alliteration but <laughs> i love I alliteration no that's a really interesting thought and you're right i think foodies in general and i'll use that term in quotes because i so overuse these days but these sort of true foodies that seek out unique food experiences and love like sort of the dis- the discovery part of the process right so it's like uh, the sandwich shop that's only open from two to five until they sell out that nobody's heard of, right? The, this is what gives those traditional foodies a high. But then I also have a goal of scaling them because I feel like, you know, Sprinkles or Pizzana can exist in lots of cities around the country. But foodies don't always like that. Mm. <laughs> foodies don't always like it when then you're two locations, then you're big, quote unquote, big business. So, um, but I think that even then we were able to turn around those, those true foodies because we, 
we were consistent, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the food business is about consistency. And I, I don't remember the exact stat, but I guess there's a stat that says that if your food is average, but you're at least consistent, you have a higher likelihood of sticking around than, you know, food that's superlative that doesn't always deliver. Um, and it makes sense. You, people want to walk into a restaurant and know what they're getting. So I think we really, we surprised and delighted them in the beginning, but then we stayed consistent and true to our brand mission. And so people knew what to expect and, and they and they kept loving us. I'm so fascinated by the food business in general, because I think that there are a lot of entrepreneurs who never thought they would be entrepreneurs, but you get food. It's, it's visceral. It's uh, nostalgic. It's all sorts of things that, you know, our people think they can do that too. So selling food products seems like a really tough industry to break into. Uh, has that been your experience? Well, I think it's, to your point, like something that seems anyone can do. It's kind of easy to break into, but hard to succeed. Because if you think about what I did, I mean, I literally did what anyone could do. I made a company out of a cupcake my kids can bake cupcakes. Like I wasn't, you know, creating some sort of high-end technology. I wasn't a tech savant. I wasn't an engineer. I literally made a cupcake, which people around the country do every day, but built a business out of it. So the fact that it's a really actually easy entry, right? Because people can start in their kitchens. Um, and more so even today than back in the day, like I, when I was baking out of my kitchen and selling out of my kitchen, I wasn't really allowed. Now we have like cottage food laws that allow for people, you know, of a certain scale um, to bake out of their kitchen, uh, you know, and be on the up and up. But so you can start, but it's hard to scale and it's hard to reach that. Um, it's hard to break through the noise, right? Because everybody's got their applesauce that that people think is great or everybody's got their brownie that like, you know, the family loves. And why don't you get you build a business um, on your brownies? But, you know, I think it's easy to get into, but there's a because of that, a lot of people falter because they're not really thinking about it like, an actual business, which it is. It's it's business just like anything else and the same principles apply. Entrepreneurship is not recklessness. It's not, you know, leaping off a cliff. Um, it is certainly taking a risk, but what isn't these days, right? I mean, people are getting their job offers revoked. People are losing their jobs at tech companies that we thought were, you know, uh, superpowers. Hold on to your wallets, boys and girls. Money Rehab will be right back. Now for some more money rehab. I suppose you also have to define what success is for that business, though. Do you want the brownies to be the next uh, McDonald's or do you want to just have an artisanal brownie shop in Brooklyn and, you know, be able to pay the bills and be cool with that? Because I, I think that as you go along this entrepreneurial journey and you've seen the goalpost constantly changes mm. for what success is. So it never feels like potentially you get your brain to the other side of it unless you stay steadfast to really what the goal is uh, from the outset. It's also very easy, especially on social media, to be like, oh, I'm not doing anything with my life compared to so-and-so. Oh but then it's a really good reminder to be like, well, was the thing that so-and-so posted, uh, you know, or with their franchises or whatever, was that a part of what my success definition was or not? And if not, maybe move on. 
I think that's so true. And by the way, no one is immune to the compare and despair. So just anyone who's listening out there, um, if you do that, we all do it. I do it too. Um, yeah. And I think one of the reasons why the book goes from ideation to sale, because, you know, eight years after with was eight years in 2012, my husband and I sold the majority of sprinkles to private equity. So I saw from bootstrapping out of my little kitchen to selling a national business and brand to a private equity company, but that's not going to apply to everyone. And I realized that, and I obviously go into that in my book, that everyone has different goals and what does it mean to you? What does success mean to you? But I think it's important to sort of envision what could be your end goal, whether it's selling, whether it's continuing to operate, you know, as a CEO for the remainder of your years, whatever that is, and kind of working backwards, because that will help guide your choices in terms of the investment you make, the foundation that you're building. Like, do you need a foundation to scale, right? And I think people also think for food products, general consumer products are high margin businesses, but then restaurant which people also want to go in, even if they don't have other entrepreneurial dreams or endeavors because of that nostalgia, um, are traditionally low margin businesses. So what are the pros and cons of doing a brick and mortar food business versus just direct to consumer e-commerce? Great question. And I get this question a lot where people ask about the food business. But as you so aptly pointed out, the food business really like spans a lot. So it's very different to be starting a CPG business, you know, direct to consumer, for example, like my friend, Lisa Odenweller, who has Chroma Wellness, which is this great reset versus opening Pizzana, right? Um, And I think there's some pros and cons. Absolutely. One of the cons, as you mentioned, the margins are real thin when it comes to restaurants. And the only way to make up for that is with volume. You've got to make up for it with volume. I mean, thank goodness people order pizza to go, right? Thank goodness people come into Sprinkles and buy not just one or two cupcakes, but two dozen. Um, It makes a really, really big difference. But the pros are that, first of all, people need to eat every day. Like that's the great thing about going into the food business and particularly the restaurant business. It's like people got to eat and they're fickle and they want to mix it up and they want to go to new places and definitely on the heels of the pandemic, they're they're interested in getting inside restaurants again. Um, and because of that, you're able to control the customer experience. So like, there's nothing quite like getting a pizza fresh out of a wood-burning oven, right? It's so just ooey and gooey and craveable. And so you're able to really so, sort of elicit this um, response from people that makes them crave it and come back. Unlike, you know, something you might, get pick up at the grocery store or get in the mail and you open and it's packaged good, delicious, sure, but not the same as that just like hot, freshly made food. Um, and the same was, you know, the same can be said for sprinkles. Like people at the time were not used to getting cupcakes that were so freshly baked. And there's something completely irresistible about a freshly baked cupcake. Like I am fanatical when people say they're going to save it to the next day. I'm like, no, no, there's no point. You have to eat it freshly baked. Great willpower. (laughs) There you go. But I also, it's easy for me to say because I had a lot of access to it. Um, But so I think there's this craveability. And also when you, you know, uh, erect this restaurant or retail bakery or whatever it is, 
that's your marketing. That's your billboard. And as we all know, for people who are duking it out online right now, boy, is it hard to get eyeballs. Boy, is it hard to, you know, stand out uh, in the world of digital advertising and expensive right now. So people are going back to traditional advertising and with good reason. And so when you build a beautiful restaurant, that's your billboard. People drive by it every day. People walk in and out. They can really like experience it the exactly the way you want it to. So you own that customer experience. You're not handing off a box to UPS and hoping, hoping it doesn't get smashed. So I really am uh, passionate about delivering not just an elevated product, but an elevated experience. And so it's really important to me to, to, to own my channel. Now, having said that, I do believe in brand extensions, um, utilizing other channels, in particular for national brand awareness. Um, so we are, for example, Pizzano, we're shipping via Gold Belly right now, our pizzas. And with Sprinkles, you know, we sold a cupcake mix through Williams-Sonoma. Why did we do that? We weren't making money. We did it because we were planning to go into these other markets across the U.S., but it takes a long time to build brick-and-mortar stores. So by the time we got there, we hoped that these mixes would bring some brand awareness for our company. Very smart. Good advice, obviously. This is Money Rehab, of course. Can you tell us, Candice, about a time that you needed money rehab or if there was a time that you had some sort of money-related uh, hiccup or snafu and how you navigated it? Oh, my God. This is ridiculous. And I know, first of all, thank you. Thank God there are people like you in the world that are helping um, us all to be more savvy when it comes to money and women in particular, I, I needed you. I needed you at the time in college, you know, they would set up, I'm sure they still do those tables where they're like, you know, giving out these credit cards, like, you know, candy. And I didn't understand how credit card worked. I was at like one of the top colleges in the United States. I was an economics major and I did not understand that if you did not pay off your bill in full, that you were getting screwed. I literally didn't even get it. And nobody thought to tell me. Um, so that's embarrassing. And um, yeah, I think, you know, we really need to do a better job of educating our kids, even high school, college kids. I mean, my, you know, liberal arts college didn't even offer an accounting class. I was like, hey guys, I'm, you have investment banks recruiting here. Uh, I'm going to be a financial analyst. I think it'd be helpful to like, have an accounting class here. Um, and they sent me to the local community college. So, oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. I think we're, you know, in the name of higher education, we are somehow like, uh, you know, asleep at the wheel on real practical life education and financial literacy. And I do sense that that's changing and I do hope that it will change. But I certainly, um, caught, it caught me by surprise. That's wild. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, as mm -hmm. an economics major or even I'm an, I don't never know why I'm invited to go talk to business schools. I'm like, I didn't go to business school. I didn't work at a bank. Like, why do you have me here? <laughs> Shouldn't you already know this basic budget 
stuff. No, but they don't. They it's don't. A travesty. That's obviously why I do what I do. But the financial literacy issue is prevalent. And thank you for telling us, too, at the college level, we talk about it not being taught at schools. You know, what are we going to use geometry for or whatever? You're probably looking at this being a mom now. But yeah, it's at every level. Well, thank you for keeping it real and reminding people that even if you got an econ degree um, from an awesome school and even if you worked in bank there are still things that you don't know and it's okay because we're all learning and growing rinse and repeat thank you so much nicole this is really fun for today's tip you can take straight to the bank if you're interested in starting a business focus on research to that specific industry if you're an aspiring founder you might want to read steve jobs's biography for sure but that might not help you a ton if your business is outside the tech sphere as Candace mentions, the food industry, the restaurant industry specifically, tends to be low margin. So you have to focus on volume in order to turn a profit. But not all industries, of course, are like that. You're going to want to spend time researching how to turn your customers into repeat customers if you're in an industry like wedding planning, for example, right? If all goes according to plan, those customers are going to be one and done shoppers. So it's important to understand how you'll need to build your business model to the specs of your industry. is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Our producers are Morgan Lavoie and Mike Coscarelli. Executive producers are Nikki Etor and Will Pearson. Our mascots are Penny and Mimsy. Huge thanks to OG Money Rehab team Michelle Lands for her development work, Catherine Law for her production and writing magic, and Brandon Dicker for his editing, engineering, and sound design. And as always, thanks to you for finally investing in yourself so that you can get it together and get it all. You spend my money, money, money.